we've fallen for this idea of neutrality. We've fallen for the idea that in the public school system, for example, that we could just teach children reading, writing, and arithmetic, which again, sounds good, but it's simply a utopian fantasy to think that adults could have charge of children for eight hours a day without some kind of values being imparted. Welcome back to The Kevin Roberts Show. I'm being honest when I say I get excited about every guest that is absolutely the truth. I'm really excited about this guest. She has her own show, The Liz Wheeler Show. She's a longtime friend of heritage of mine, including my eldest daughter, and someone who I think is fearless. And she, she shows every day in her show, in her witness to the truth, that you can be fearless and courageous and cheerful all at the same time. And so we're going to talk about Liz's book, but let me stop here and say, Liz Wheeler, thanks for making the time for this. Oh, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So you have published this wonderful book. People watching can, can see the cover here, Hide Your Children, Exposing the Marxists Behind the Attack on America's Kids. We're going to delve into that. I've just in the last few hours reviewed the book. I re really mean it when I say it, Liz. It's fantastic. It's substantive. It's hard hitting. I'm going to let you tell the story about it. But before we get into the book, tell us about how you got to where you're doing and what you're doing for a living. Yeah, well, thank you for that opportunity. I think many people's stories are um, accidental and mine feels like I accidentally got to the right place as well. Um, I was a competitive swimmer in high school, not interested in politics, although I was raised in a Catholic conservative family, um, planning on going to college to do more competitive swimming and was very focused on that world. But late in high school, I was diagnosed with a serious autoimmune disease and was forced to stop swimming. And during the years that I was battling that, I couldn't do much physically and I got so bored. So I started reading book after book after book after book, just a book a day because it's all I could do. Read everything I could get my hands on. I got interested in politics in 2007 during that infamous primary between Hillary Clinton and the newcomer Barack Obama. And when he won election in 2008, I realized, listen, this is not good for our country. I need to get more involved here. So I started getting involved, you know, on political Twitter. It was new at the time. And then I ended up serving in local government in my hometown in Ohio. I put together a book with, when I was in college with 14 other young conservatives talking about why we as young people were conservatives because most people said, oh, you're an anomaly, you're a unicorn if you're young and conservative. Um, got more involved. Around the 2015 Republican primary season, I was offered a job as a uh, communications director for one of the Republican candidates, but I had moved to San Diego by that point, and I didn't want to move to Washington, D.C., uh, away from my brand new boyfriend, who is now my husband of six years. So I ended up, my husband, I was complaining to my husband, oh, I, I'm tired of working at just a nothing old job. I really want to get into politics. What should I do? And he suggested that I reach out to a local, not really a local, but stationed locally, a national news organization that was new. It was where I had previously worked. I, I spent 1995 on a LinkedIn in-mail, sent it to the CEO, obviously never heard back from him. Three months later, though, I get an email in my inbox from him saying, listen, I've been following your work for the last couple of months, watching what you're doing. I think I have a show for you. Call me. So I go down to, I go down to those studios the next day and audition, talk to him all day long, audition for them. He offered me a show. The next week I was on air and I was privileged to host that show for five years. Um, had the time of my life around the time that right before my first daughter was born, um, I decided, you know what? 
Cable news is great, but the average age of a cable news viewer is about 70 years old. Someone needs to be talking to the younger people. So I went independent, launched my podcast, and two years later, here we are with the podcast still going and this book just out. So it seems like I accidentally got here, but I don't know if I believe in accidents. No, we, you and I both know, and probably everyone in the audience as, as people of faith know that, uh, our good Lord above had something to do with that. We're going to get into your faith and faith and politics generally. But I'll say what I love about your story is that in that in that story is perseverance, initiative, but also creativity. You know, one of the things that that I mentioned when I talk to audiences of people who are younger than me, which is an increasing number of audiences, that uh, what what I don't decry about the younger generation, in fact, I celebrate, is that y'all are innovative, you're creative, you're looking for ways not to work for the man. And the more we can do that, the less reliant we're on in government, the less we're reliant on someone else to tell us what to do, and the more self-governing we really are. And ultimately, that's the story, right? And and we've got to be able to do that in our own lives, in our own careers. So thanks, of course, for what you do with your show, but also for that wonderful story that I'm sure will inspire some of our audience members. Yeah, of course. And the other thing that I would like to, I would like to think could be an example to especially young women is so often young women in our culture are told not to sac- not to sacrifice anything career wise for a husband or a potential husband or for their children. And I chose to do both of those things. I chose to sacrifice career opportunities because I was in love and I'm so happy that I made that sacrifice. And I chose that I didn't want to work a hundred hours in the office away from my daughter. And I sacrificed that you know, that top rated show that I was hosting in, in the interest of my family, and it hasn't held me back. So hopefully a little bit of a counter narrative to what young women are being told about how to prioritize things in their life. Well, that's, that's so eloquent. And, and really, your show's doing gangbusters. I mean, being independent has worked out really well for you. Thank goodness. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I imagine there is there is a little bit of It's a little scary hesitation. to launch independent. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, let's talk about your book. As I said, the title's Hide Your Children, Exposing the Marxist Behind the Attack on America's Kids. You are busy, little one at home, busy with your independent show, happily married, loving life. It, it, it takes a big effort to write a book. And so, so there was some calculus, apparently, that you had where you said, I have got to put pen to paper and and make this happen. Was there a precise moment where you said, I'm writing this book? Um, I would call it a miscalculation because I underestimated how much time it would take me. Listen, people are like, oh, did you not just have the time of your life writing this book? And I was like, no, it was absolutely miserable and totally worth it because it's such it's such a necessary thing that we as conservatives outside of the Republican Party apparatus need to be focused on. We need to be able to take a step back and look at the fact that we're living in this cultural madness where little girls are told they can be boys. Boys are told if they identify as girls that they are one. White children are told they're racist. Black children are told they're oppressed. You know, the 1619 Project is shoved down everyone's throat to make them anti-American. We didn't get to this point in our culture because the Republican Party has been fighting back effectively against the assaults that aren't new. A lot of parents during COVID would look over their kids' shoulders and see this stuff being poured into their kids' minds, and they were shocked because they'd never seen it before. But it's not because people's eyes weren't open because it's new. People's eyes were open because they had access to their children's classrooms through the computer and because it's escalating. But truly, the seeds for this assault that we're seeing on our kids 
has been decades in the making. So part of this book is is a critique, of course, on those who are behind the attack on our kids. I name the names of the people and the organizations behind it so that we understand who it is. But part of it's also uh, a critique of the Republican Party, because the Republican Party is supposed to be the political apparatus that serves as a bulwark, a protector against the inevitable assaults on our liberty and our families. Well, I want to key in on that before reading a, a really telling passage from, from an early part of your book. And, and that is, it isn't just that the, the people you, you openly criticize are radical leftists. There are some people and institutions on the political right, the Republican Party among them, also just sort of a habit of thinking, even by otherwise you know, very normal conservative people that you, you find particularly unhelpful. I mean, not to be too critical here, but feel free to if you would like. We like to tell the truth on this show. Are there two or three modes of thought or two or three groups of people or institutions that you you have found particularly problematic when it comes to having a, an American politics, A, focused on the right diagnosis of the problems, and B, mustering the political will to actually solve those problems? Yeah, and we can get into the Marxists and the leftists that are behind these attacks. It's not its not a book that's supposed to ex expose these attacks to parents. Parents already know about these attacks. It's supposed to say, listen, we have to understand who's behind them if we want to fight back effectively, because we haven't been thus far. But one of the, one of the things about the Republican Party that's been most harmful, and this wasn't necessarily done, by the way, with any, with any malicious or nefarious motives. This is it's, it's up to anybody to guess why, whether it's a lack of education, whether it's naivete, whether it was moving away from religion, why the Republican parties embraced this. But this is the philosophical part of my book. The Republican party right now, when we sit here, you and I, we think of ourselves as living in a free country, under duress perhaps, under attack, but we live in a free country. What does that mean though? What, what is freedom? What's the definition of liberty? The definition of liberty, according to the Republican Party, is trying to maximize individual freedom, basically as close to absolute freedom as you can achieve in a civilized society. And this sounds good. This sounds, this sounds great. This is a definition that I embraced up until a couple of years ago. But as I'm, as I'm writing this book and over the last couple of years, as I'm, as I'm studying the political philosophy of our country and what has gone wrong with the Republican Party, I realize that there's a, a conundrum, if you will. Maybe it's even stronger than a conundrum because if what the Republican Party says is true, if freedom is the goal of political policies, then what David French said when he once said that Drag Queen Story Hour is a blessing of liberty, that would have to be true because those grown men dressed as sexualized versions of women gyrating in front of children would have to have some inherent morality to it just because the men had the freedom to do that. And I reject that premise. There's nothing moral about that. It's grotesque. It's evil, which tells us that the Republican Party's definition of liberty must be wrong. It must be incorrect. And it leaves us with an alternative definition that freedom, instead of being the ultimate end, must be the means to something greater. So I challenge conservatives in my book to grapple with this question. What is this something greater? What do we want our society to look like? What do, how do we define human flourishing and how do we use the just authority of government to achieve that? Because Kevin, here's the thing. The, the idea of limited government is often misunderstood by these same Republicans who have the wrong definition of liberty. They define limited government as simply being a government as small as possible. There's even a stigma on using government for almost anything because they think, oh, that's going to give government more power, that's going to grow the breadth of, of, the, of, this, of this governing state. 
And that's not the real definition of limited government. Limited government means constrained by enumerated powers or constrained by accountability to the people. So again, I challenge conservatives, well, think about what the just authority of government is supposed to be used for. It's supposed to help govern our society along a moral order. And this moral order isn't as defined by by populism. A moral order is objective truth. This exists regardless of whether we choose to acknowledge it or not. And this is the third error of the Republican Party. We've fallen for this idea of neutrality. We've fallen for the idea that in the public school system, for example, that we could just teach children reading, writing, and arithmetic, which again, sounds good, but it's simply a utopian fantasy to think that adults could have charge of children for eight hours a day without some kind of values being imparted. And so it's either going to be the Democrat ideologies that are imparted to children, or it's going to be Republican values, which are American values and Judeo-Christian principles. So really this all amounts to when the Republican Party tried to abandon morality in favor of neutrality, they it led to where we are today and allowed the left to take over all these institutions. Well, Liz, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to take that, uh, that clip of, of that soliloquy, and I am going to put it in the microchip of every Republican member of the U.S. House and U.S. Senate. And, but the good news is, and I'm going to come back to why I want to do that, but the good news is an increasing percentage of them agree 100% with what you just said. And, and what I want to, so before I return to that point, I want to say this, because no doubt, when some people hear that, they, they they sort of feel like, you know, maybe they're being attacked, not because they think the Republican Party is now as pure as the the, the wind-driven snow, but they, they hear in there perhaps something that they're guilty of. And so I always tell people, we've all had to undergo this recognition that the Republican Party, the conservative movement writ large, if we don't want to put this in partisan terms, has, has really become untethered from its longstanding roots to timeless principles. And the most important of those principles, the, the, the thing that even gives us the opportunity, the freedom to conserve other institutions, is the transcendent moral order. And, and you know, sometimes on this point, I'm, I'm, I'm asked to give talks about conservatism then and now, and I always ask the audience, especially if it's college students, as I did here at Heritage earlier this week, don't you think that what hasn't changed is the transcendent moral order? And if, if anyone, and I invite the conversation, even the pushback, if someone says, well, yeah, that's changed, it's impossible to be a conservative if we don't believe in that. And, and, and to come full circle here, think of how few times the Republican Party in the last decade has been willing to stand up for that explicitly. Uh, having been engaged in a lot of religious liberty fights, including here at Heritage, I can tell you it's too far and few between. You cover that very well in your book. But let me ask you this follow-up question. Are you hopeful that we can fix that problem? I think so, because I think the younger generation of conservatives specifically are recognizing that the Republican Party isn't actually conservative. We call ourselves conservatives aside from the Republican Party because we do believe in objective truth. We do believe that our government was rooted in natural law. That's why we acknowledge the rights given to us by our creator. We don't extend them as a privilege from the government to the citizen or from the government to the subject. But the younger generation is realizing that actually the Republican Party is libertarian. And I don't say this with any animosity towards libertarians. I was libertarian once too. We all were. It's part of the journey. Until you recognize, listen, my story, my transformation from being more libertarian leaning to being 
truly conservative, which is how I would identify now, happened just in the past couple of years. I was actually, it started at CPAC back in 2016. I spoke there. Marco Rubio was running late and I spoke in his place to this packed, this packed room. And afterward, I was out in the lobby taking pictures and different people were coming up, different journalists were coming up asking me who I wanted for the, for the candidate for the Republican nomination. You remember the madness. And this one journalist comes up to me, this independent journalist, and says, can I ask you how you define freedom? And can I ask you what role the government plays in governing that? And I was kind of surprised because most people had been asking me, do you like Trump or Rubio or Cruz or whoever you like? And I told, I gave a very libertarian definition. I said, oh, the definition of liberty is as many, as maximum individual rights as possible. And government should really stay off your lawn unless you're actively violating someone else's right. And he then followed up and said, well, what about the legalization of drugs? Do you believe in that? And I said, no, I don't. And he's like, even marijuana? I was like, no, marijuana is harmful for our society. I know it's unpopular to say so, but them's the facts. That's how it is. And he said, well, don't you feel like you're contradicting your own principles if you think government shouldn't be involved in anything but protecting one person's right from being violated? And I argued with him for a few minutes. This video is actually still on YouTube, as embarrassing as it is. And that conversation has stuck with me for all these years because as I walked away, I thought, you know, he's actually right. He's actually right. Now, he turned out not to be a journalist. I think he was a marijuana legalization activist. Kind of sounds like makes it. it a little... Yeah, it makes it a little funnier. But he was right accidentally in the sense that if I am against the legalization of drugs because it might harm you, but it's not our business, if the if the harm to society is indirect, then government has no role in that. And yet I can't think of very many people who are advocating for meth and heroin and fentanyl to be legal. And that was kind of the beginning of my evolution. So when I criticize libertarianism, it's not out of any animosity because I used to feel that way and think that way and espouse views um, that libertarians hold, it's simply because it doesn't work because they get the definition of liberty wrong. And young people are starting to see this because we realize that if if libertarianism worked, then we wouldn't be where we are today. Yeah. You, and in fact, you you open your, your book this way with a, a related point. You, you say, expect escalation. I write this book as both a warning and a call to action. However, I'm also energized and confident about the available road ahead should we choose to seek it. Parents have exposed critical race theory in their children's classrooms. Concerned American citizens, people like you and me, you write, have challenged and unseated school board members who embrace the racist ideology of CRT. We have influenced state legislators to ban the racialist ideology of CRT in many public schools. Bottom line, parents won. The reason I read that passage in response to your, your libertarian observation is that the, the onset, the implementation of critical race theory is a direct result of many things. One of them is many Republican policymakers saying, all we care about is universal school choice. We will not get involved in curriculum. I, I, I had to fight that uh, not all that long ago in Texas. Otherwise, good conservatives saying, it's not up to us to decide the curriculum. The, basically what they're saying, to use your language, these school districts should have the maximum freedom to decide what they teach kids. And when we go down that road, particularly as it relates to education, as you cover so well in your book, our kids and therefore present society, future society are all harmed. Talk to us about the significance of just education generally as it relates to this, this tension in the conservative movement. But secondly, also some of the victories that have already been secured. That's right. I started my book by acknowledging a lot of victories because if there was a silver lining to COVID, 
I don't know if you could make an argument given how much freedom has been violated in the process, but if there is, let's, let's accept that for a moment, then it would be that so many people's eyes have been opened. And I'm not even talking about just Republicans and conservatives. I'm talking about people that aren't particularly politically active, parents who aren't particularly religious, but who know in their gut, teaching my child that if they're white, they're racist, or if they're black, they're oppressed. That's wrong. I don't, I don't know what that is, but I don't like it. I don't want my child taught that. This is going to cause escalation, these victories that we've won, because the left has enjoyed this cushion of decades upon decades to essentially plot and infiltrate and subvert these institutions unencumbered by any Republican opposition. Republicans had their heads in the sand. We were blithely unaware as this was happening. That is no longer true. Republicans are now aware of just how serious the threat against us and our families are. And because of that, this leaves the left or the Marxists no other choice but to impose their Marxism on us now or for be defeated, at least for this generation. So it's both encouraging because people's eyes are opened and they understand what we're facing. They are committed to defeating it. But it is also going to cause escalation because the other side, after after infiltrating and subverting these institutions for 50 years, they're not going to just go away easily. So what do you what say? Is, oh, go ahead. Oh, one example that I want to give, because I know a lot of these, a lot of these things we're talking about are philosophical or abstract, but one of the examples that I give in my book was one of the most interesting things I came across in the course of my research was when I was studying the origin of the public school system in our country, public schooling hasn't been mandatory in our country for that long. Massachusetts was the first state to make it compulsory. That happened in 1852. And the reason was because the Protestant politicians in charge of Massachusetts wanted to indoctrinate. There was this influx of immigrants coming to our country at the time, particularly Catholic immigrants. And these Protestant politicians wanted to indoctrinate the immigrant children in American values so that they would be loyal to America first rather than the country of their birth. And they wanted to indoctrinate them in Protestant values because of the centuries long battle between between Protestants and Catholics. And I realized upon studying this that our education system actually is supposed to be used as an indoctrination center. That's what it was designed to do. We oftentimes have a negative connotation of the word indoctrination, but that's only because of what the left is indoctrinating our children with. The actual concept of indoctrination is a morally neutral concept. It does depend on what is being indoctrinated that determines whether it's good or bad. So I challenge conservatives, this is one of those times that we have to reorient our thinking as a party. We can't pull back and say, we leave it to the quote unquote experts. We we don't want to tell people what's right and wrong. We just want it to be neutral, just reading, writing, and arithmetic. No, no. We've seen what happens because sometime between 1852 and now, Republicans did pull their morals out of the public school system and it didn't result in a neutral institution. It just resulted in the Democrats being delighted to swoop in and indoctrinate children with their ideologies instead. Yeah. And and, and on that point of the, the origins of, of mandatory public schools and indoctrination, I'll add this, that uh, dating back to the 1770s and 80s, you know, just to, to play historian for a moment. Dr. Benjamin Rush, who is a medical doctor, but also the, the first early proponent of widespread public schools, not mandatory, but just widespread, said that in addition to teaching reading, writing, and arithmetic, the real purpose of, of these schools ought to be the transmission of American values, especially republicanism, little r republicanism, our belief in a moral order animated by a just and limited government from one generation to the next. And, and that, that's the thing that a lot of conservatives are missing, especially policymakers, that it isn't just enough to change the delivery vehicle, if you will, a perfectly wonderful option known as universal school choice. We have to be courageous in getting in there and, and not establishing neutrality, 
but establishing a curriculum that that propagates a belief in a transcendent moral order. That's a really tall order right now, but I, I, I do think that we're seeing pockets of that happening, especially in, in some more red states. What do you tell, however, the, the, the person who's maybe philosophically aligned, but maybe they're risk averse, and they, they read in your book about the necessity of this escalation, they hear this exchange that you and I have just had, that this, is, this escalation is a necessary part of, of America improving itself, but they just don't like the sound of that. How do you convince them that not only is that appropriate, but that they, in spite of their risk aversion, need to be part of the effort? Well, I would say if we do nothing, what is our country going to look like in five years? Are your children going to be living in your home if you're a Christian, if you're a conservative, if you teach them biblical values, if you take them to church, if you tell your five-year-old boy that no, he can't be a girl? Is, is the government going to be taking away your children? And by the government, I mean the leftists in charge of government. If the answer to that question is yes, or I don't know, then it means we need to change course. It's not easy what I'm asking. That's why the first sentence in my book, I say, we have recourse if we choose to take it. Because we'd all prefer there to be an easier solution to this. We'd all prefer if we just could, you know, have our families in order, donate money to our church, you know, be involved in our community, that there would be a downstream effect that would trickle all the way to government. I wish that were true. That's been the prescription in every conservative book for the last 25 years. We've all, and it's, it's, it's done good on the individual basis when we have put that into practice, but it doesn't have a trickle down effect into our government anymore. A lot of our politicians, as I said at the beginning, aren't poorly intentioned with their misdefinition of liberty. They're just ignorant of what the definition of liberty actually is, which kind of substantiates my point that our education system needs to be used as an indoctrination center to teach these very people what the purpose of our government is and what the value of American liberty is. It's not an easy fight. I won't pretend that it's an easy fight. I mean, just on a personal level, I've been swatted, I've been doxxed, I've been stalked, I am subject to death threats. These people mean business. The reason that I share that is not because I'm pretending to play the victim. It's because it shows us that these, this opposition is not going to stop unless we use the, pow the just power of the government to stop them. And my argument is that we have the just power of government. A lot of people, when I make this argument, will say, are you talking about theocracy? Isn't this right-wing authoritarianism? Won't this give, you know, Democrat politicians, the next time they're in power, the authority to, to ban Christian ideas in school? And my response to that is, they're already banning Christian ideas in school. We're not, we're not risking uh, allowing the Democrats to come in and start trying to stifle our free speech because they're already doing it. And if we don't put a stop to it soon, we won't even be allowed to dissent. What do you say to conservatives who, who say, all of this sounds good, um, but if it requires me to do something that conservatives has, have said is a requisite part of conservatism, which is having faith, not just going to church, but, but actually explicitly in the public square living out one's faith, they say, you know, this decline in religiosity is okay. We can have conservatism without that. I know you, Liz, well enough to know that your faith is vital. It probably is a, a great mechanism, among other things, for coping with some of the threats that you get. But it seems as if even in, in that, that story which you share, just, just to exemplify the ferocity of the left, that, that also is a symptom of this decline in religiosity. And, and I often tell audiences, conservative audiences, you, you can't have conservatism without some semblance, at least, of religion, like active practicing of religion, not as Obama said, 
you know, somehow just a freedom of worship in our own minds and not even just in our own churches, but explicitly, vibrantly in the public square. Does the rejuvenation of the American Republic, in other words, require a rejuvenation of faith? Of course it does. And this makes Republicans across the board squeamish. And I understand that. And I empathize with that because I suspect that this is one of the reasons why the Republican Party has gotten off track with their definition of liberty is because we have we we live in a post-Christian civilization in the United States of America now, and conservatives and Republicans aren't immune to that. We are also, as a culture, less religious, and we order our lives less around God, less around biblical morals than I would argue ever before in our nation's history. So of course this impacts a lot. I mean, I, I, I don't want to name names because that would be unkind, but I can think off the top of my head of half a dozen Republicans who are stalwart conservatives. They're not swamp creatures. They're not rhinos, but they're not exactly practicing their faith in their private life, let alone their public life. And that does make a difference. It, it certainly makes a difference. Again, I'm not trying to sound like a scold here, and I'm not trying to sound preachy here. I'm just observing what has happened in our nation, and it does require a spiritual awakening. I think there is a spiritual awakening happening among youth right now, and I think that the left also recognizes that, which is why they always, they, they recognize this need in every human being to be part of not just something greater in the vague sense, but it, to pursue the love of God and to share the kingdom of God. And that's why they, they construct many of their ideologies in the form of a religion, a cult religion, but they, they construct their ideologies in this way because they know that well, it's human nature to desire that. So if I can offer them a false God, maybe I can dupe people into following me instead of following the actual God. But we all know that the, especially the framing of our constitution, even more so than the Declaration of Independence, was crafted with the acknowledgement that our system of government is going to be based around natural law. I mean, the constitution was written based on English law. English law is based on natural law. James Madison himself in the Federalist Paper number 51 wrote, he defined liberty for us. We don't have to we don't have to vote on what the definition of liberty is. He said liberty is justice. The end of all civil society is justice. And of course, we have British philosopher Edmund Burke who said justice is defined as original justice capital O capital J. And he of course meant natural law. He meant the earthly participation in God's law. And I understand. I do understand if that makes some people uncomfortable. I do. I empathize with it. I just you can tell me if there's another way, Kevin, that I'm missing, that we can fix the problem, but I don't see that there is another way because we've tried everything else and it hasn't worked. No, I think you're you're right about that. And and it does lead me to, to the next question, which is kind of what I often call on my show homework assignments for the audience, because people say, Kevin, we love the heady conversation. We love the conversation with newsmakers, people like Liz, but give us some action items. And and you open one of the, the final chapters of your book this way. This book was not a jolly scamper through a meadow filled with rainbows and butterflies. I'm aware of that, you write. At some points, it's been shocking and horrifying. At other times, perhaps infuriating, frustrating, even depressing. But never, I trust, hopeless. My goal in writing this book, you continue, was to achieve a clear-eyed understanding of what's happening in our nation, to make order out of the chaos raging around us, and hopefully to point us toward the path of victory. And what I love about what follows is that you go through not just point by point, but with some depth and specificity, some action items, some things that everyday Americans who are the people in this audience and in your audience can do. What are some of the most important that are top of mind for you? 
You know what's funny is when I for, when I turned in the first draft of that chapter to my editor, he pushed it back to me with just one comment. He goes, this list is intimidating for a president of the United State, States, let alone a flustered parent. Could we pare this down? And I was like, you've just paid me the best compliment ever. Absolutely not. We're not paring it down. I'm glad you stood your ground. Because it's necessary. As I said, I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to be impolite when I criticize other conservative books. I read them all. I love them. I've learned so much. But oftentimes the prescription or the call to action, the solution at the end is just for people to believe in the American dream, to vaguely reclaim that, to order your personal lives. And I want people to understand that it's important to order your personal lives, but sometimes in a society, a solution isn't actually affected by just one person. A solution is affected by us working together as a community to pressure our elected officials who work for us to represent us into helping order society towards the moral end that we all believe is necessary. And so most of these, I think there's 12, there's 12 items in this chapter. Most of them are things that the government can do to serve as a bulwark against some of these evil ideologies, like legislatively banning critical race theory from ever touching an institution that touches a, tax, a taxpayer dollar, including the public schools, banning queer theory from public schools and any institution that touches taxpayer money, um, prohibiting even private colleges that accept federally subsidized student loans from having so much as a DEI office, banning ESG from companies that do contracts with the government because ESG is just a way of locking in these ideologies, especially in the woke corporations that target our children. We have the just authority of government on our side to help order society. We don't just have to win public opinion because after all, if you look at public opinion on these different issues, on critical race theory, trans ideology, DEI, ESG, public opinion is already against them. It's the Democrats that are ignoring the will of the majority that they always like to talk about in our quote unquote democracy. And so we have to then say, well, now it's time to act like adults and operate the republic that we are in the way that it was intended. So I write a prescription of many legislative things that we can do um, in order to eradicate this rather than just playing whack-a-mole on individual school districts or in individual classrooms, as much as I admire the parents that do that on behalf of the children in those classrooms. Well, it, the the list of, of to-do items is a tour de force, and I just commend that part of your book in particular to the audience. Let me ask you this final question. I mean, I, I think I know the answer to this question because I've, I've been on your show a few times and, and talked to you otherwise. But we always like to hit hard on this show. I mean, that in a lot of ways is the job of the Heritage Foundation to read reality truthfully, as we like to say, and then provide a path from bad to good. And so in spite of all the challenges that are apparent in the United States to, to anyone living here, are you hopeful about the American future? And if so, why? Yeah, I always say that I wouldn't be doing what I do for a living if I didn't think that there was a chance of victory because it's too hard of work. There's too much sacrifice. I love what I do, but it's not easy. And I wouldn't be doing it if I thought it was, if, if I thought there was no hope. I do have incredible hope in our system. I have incredible faith in God. I have incredible faith in my fellow American citizens, in parents, especially the parents who have taken a stand over the last couple of years on behalf of children. We, there is a path forward. That's why I wrote this book, because people simultaneously either feel hopeless and feel that we have no recourse, that it's over, their votes don't count as anything, their politicians don't care, our institutions are collapsed. What are we even supposed to do? Should we just go and homestead and prep and go off the grid and pretend that we don't live in this country? 
We have that combined with a Republican Party that sometimes resembles the swamp as much as the Democrats do. And I just wanted to let everyone know that there it's not a binary choice of those two things. There is another way. It's not necessarily easy, which is why I spent the time talking about these issues in the depth that I did. But if we embrace this solution, I truly believe that we can we can reclaim the greatness uh, that has made the United States of America it's as wonderful as it's been for all of us. Well, Liz, thanks for that response. Thanks for making the time to talk with me today. And thanks for everything you're doing for, for the country, especially for people in your generation who in a lot of ways have the greatest amount of despair about the American future. And I, I think even, even for other audiences, but especially for them, your book's going to go a long way in addition to your own witness to, to encouraging them. Thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And everyone in the audience, be sure you go to Liz Wheeler's show. Be sure you buy the book, Hide Your Children. And of course, we're grateful that you tune in to another episode of The Kevin Roberts Show. I told you, you would enjoy the conversation. In the meantime, keep your chin up. We're going to take back this country. The Kevin Roberts Show is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producer is Crystal Kate Bonham. The producer is Philip Reynolds. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and Tim Kennedy. For more information and to subscribe, please visit heritage.org.